Welcome everyone and happy Women's History Month. Thank you all so much for joining us. It is great to be here with everyone today. And I'm really excited about the conversation that we have to kick things off. Today, we're welcoming Julia Borston. She is CNBC's senior media and technology reporter. Julia has been an on-air reporter for the network since 2006. She also plays a central role on CNBC's bi-coastal tech-focused program, Tech Check, which delivers reporting, analysis, and CEO interviews with a focus on social media and the intersection of media and technology. In 2013, Julia created and launched the CNBC Disruptor 50, an annual list that highlights private companies that are transforming the economy. Julia is here today to talk about her new book, which is terrific, called When Women Lead. And she covers a tremendous amount of research and lessons on leadership in the book. And she includes many case studies on women across different sectors. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. So with that, let's get started. Julia, welcome today. Thank you so much for joining us and for helping us to celebrate Women's History Month. I think it's a perfect way to commemorate this month by discussing your new book. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. And I'm so grateful for your interest in my book and continuing this conversation, which I hope will inform and inspire many, many people of all genders. I'm sure it will. There's so much here I want to talk about. But let's really kick off things with what motivated you to write this book? You write inside it that you wanted to take research findings and really combine that with compelling stories about women leaders, which you did beautifully. So tell us what made you want to write the book in the first place? Well, you know, it's really comes back to my 20 plus year career as a business journalist. I start off straight out of graduating college with a six year stint as a writer for Fortune magazine. From there, I went to CNBC where I've been an on-air news reporter for the past 16 plus years. And in that time, I've been really grateful to get to interview thousands and thousands of leaders, CEOs, founders, COOs, executives, and the vast majority of those people have been men. The vast majority of them have been white men. And in the past five or 10 years, I really noticed more and more women entering the conversation, more female founders in particular. And it was interesting for me through my work doing the Disruptor 50 list to see women founders create companies that were tackling different types of problems than the male founders were, and also to approach that problem solving and approach their businesses, managing their businesses, leading their businesses differently. On one hand, I was finding myself incredibly inspired by these women, especially in the startup space, and on the other hand, through my work on the Closing the Gap initiative, I was inundated by research and data about how little access to capital those women were getting. So just for context, between 2011 and about 2021, female founders drew an average of 3% of all venture capital dollars. It's never been higher than about 3%. And that number actually declined last year to 2%. It's currently less than 2% of venture capital dollars. So yes, there are co-ed teams that last year drew about 16% of all venture capital dollars, but 82% of the $330 billion in VC that was deployed went to male-only founding teams. So on one hand, I was really inspired by these women. I was so fascinated by the way they were solving problems and approaching business opportunities differently. And on the other hand, I saw that they had to defy incredibly high odds against them. I've always been fascinated by what enables people to succeed. I think we are a culture that celebrates outliers, celebrates people who've defied the odds. And I thought these are people who have really defied high odds. If I can focus in on the women who have gotten access to that 2% of capital and managed to succeed, despite the fact that 90% of all startups fail, 
then they would have leadership lessons, not just for other entrepreneurs, but for anyone who's interested in success in business. So it started off as a storytelling venture, wanting to tell these inspiring stories and figure out what we could learn from them. And then the more women I interviewed, and I ended up interviewing about 120 people for this book, thanks to the magic of technology, interviews conducted during the pandemic, I saw these key commonalities, ways in which women are more likely to lead, skills and strategies. It certainly contains that. Thank you. It really shows the case through and through, both through the stories and the information. Tell us about the qualities you found that women tend to display. What would you say really came true over and over in terms of the women who did make it against so many odds? Well, I would say, first of all, there are 120 people I interviewed. Everyone is incredibly different. No two women are the same. No two people are the same. Certainly, there are some common threads that every successful person in business, I think, has. And one of them is a growth mindset, which to me, I really saw the growth mindset is the combination of humility to understand you don't know everything and the confidence to believe that you could grow and push yourself to do the things that you aren't currently capable of. So I think that was a common through line, which what I would say would be true of male entrepreneurs or male founders as well. And then another one is authenticity. The women who had succeeded did so by not trying to fit into any sort of stereotype or archetype of what leaders are supposed to look or sound like, but by leading in ways that were really honest and true to themselves. And a couple of key traits that women are more likely to deploy and key skills and strategies that I found, and I'll walk through them in a minute, but I think what's most important to identify is these are not things that are biological differences between men and women. Almost everything I write about, and I think I mentioned testosterone twice in the book, or maybe three times. Almost everything in this 400-page book are about things that are socialized. And therefore, there are things that if men want to get better at, they can learn as well. So I think it's really important to understand that these are commonly accessible skills and strategies. So just to run through a couple of them. Empathy. Women tend to be better at empathy than men. There's a fun empathy test that I have linked to on my website. Empathy is really about the ability to understand what other people might be thinking or feeling. Too often, empathy is conflated with kindness or compassion. It can lead to kindness or compassion, but define our terms. I always talk about defining our terms. Empathy is really about the ability to see things from someone else's perspective, which can be incredibly strategic if you're negotiating a deal or if you're trying to motivate your employees or to figure out what's going to be more successful working with a team. Another key one is vulnerability. I'm not talking about saying you don't know anything about anything. I'm talking about strategically deployed vulnerability, admitting the areas where you don't know what you're doing or where you need help as a way to invite collaboration. Vulnerability has often been key to hire people to make them understand that they'll have the autonomy to go build something without being micromanaged. So I think vulnerability, I wouldn't want to overgeneralize about telling people they should be vulnerable all the time, but they should be honest and authentic and strategically vulnerable to invite collaboration. Another one, which is important, is that women are more likely to take a communal leadership style. So to pull on perspectives from across an organization, then make their own leadership decision rather than a more traditional hierarchical top-down leadership. Women are more likely to have a divergent approach to problem solving rather than a convergent approach. Men are more likely to have a convergent approach, which means a problem comes up, they focus in on solving the problem as quickly and efficiently as possible. Though there are many advantages to that, sometimes that can ignore surrounding issues. So for instance, if women have a divergent approach, that means they're more likely to pull on threads, ask about things that seem tangential or may seem tangential to some, but are really about taking the time to understand the broader landscape. 
Interestingly, women tend to rank higher in terms of adaptability. And what I found in my interviews, especially looking at adaptability during the pandemic, is that the fact that women were taking a divergent approach and had taken the time to really understand a landscape, who you call to understand what's going on at this part of the company, what you do to understand the future of this part of the business, because they had taken that time to invest in that divergent approach, that when the situation changed, they were poised to be really adaptable because they already understood the forest around the problem of the particular tree. Another one that's interesting is women are more likely to found purpose-driven companies. So companies that directly align profitability with having a positive impact either on the environment or on society. And I think that's really important, especially in this day and age, as we talk about engaging the workforce, companies with a very specific positive purpose often have an easier time attracting and retaining employees and also often have advantages when it comes if they're consumer facing to engaging with consumers, advantages over their competitors. And then a final one, which was really surprising to me as someone who's been a business journalist for forever is the concept of gratitude in business. In all my years as a business journalist, I never occurred to me that gratitude had anything to do with business. Gratitude was something that was about friends and family and your home life. I was really shocked when I found the concept of gratitude coming up time and time again in these interviews that I was doing. And again, thanks to the magic of technology, could go back and search all my transcripts for references to gratitude. And then that led me to this wealth of research about how gratitude is found to correlate with patience. And if you practice gratitude, you're more likely to make a decision that's about the long-term outcome because you feel grateful in the moment. You're okay where you are. You're less likely to make a decision that's about a short-term win. Obviously, long-term planning, having that long-term vision and not being sucked into a short-term win is incredibly valuable in business. But what was really interesting to me, and again, I did not know this before, is that women are more likely to practice gratitude and women enjoy the feeling of gratitude more than men do. Again, this is something that's socialized. Girls are trained from the time they're very young to talk to their friends about things they're grateful for, whereas men are more likely to be socialized, again, nothing biological, to feel like if they feel too grateful, maybe they owe someone something and maybe that's not a good feeling. Everyone should be practicing gratitude because it has such phenomenal benefits in terms of the way you could strategically think more big picture and more long-term. And that was a big surprise. So again, these are all things that women are more likely to do, are found to have incredible positive benefits in the business world. And certainly they seem like terrific traits that men should adopt as well. Let's go back to what you were talking about on the VC front. And we know the numbers have been so bad. I was shocked to hear that many VCs will invest in companies using things like pattern matching. So they want to find the next Mark Zuckerberg or their social connections. I think I understood that. But I was also really, really shocked to see this stat that less than two dozen women have taken their companies public ever in the public markets. I really couldn't believe that. That was so, 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 so small. No wonder we keep seeing the same names over and over again. There are just not many of them. So how do you think we could use those skills, those traits, those leadership qualities, and really make a difference when we move forward, particularly with the VC sector? The VC story is so interesting because it is so ultimately powerful if you think about the power of the tech companies. It's funny, I like looked at my phone the other day and I was thinking every single app on my phone, every single thing that influences the way I live, I shop, I work, was founded by a company that had VC backing, period. Google, YouTube, Airbnb, Uber, Spotify, you name it. The VC influence is very powerful because that's what can accelerate an idea and turn it into a game-changing business. But I think what's so important, and you mentioned pattern matching, 
is the idea that at the earliest stages, when you have an entrepreneur pitching an idea for seed or series A, the early stages of funding, they don't have a track record yet. They have an idea. They have their own track record as an executive or an employee, maybe someone who worked for Google or Microsoft, but they themselves can't say, hey, this is what my company has done because they're looking to raise the money to actually have revenue and profits. So at that phase, investors are betting on the idea and they're betting on the entrepreneur more than anything. And there's some interesting studies I cite in the book about how investors say, yeah, I don't even look at comps. I'm just betting on how much I believe in this person. So this is not a secret. But what's interesting is at every stage, at the seed stage, A stage, and B stage, at these earlier stages, men raise money at a higher rate than women do when they're pitching their companies. But then something changes once you get to the Series C. Series C is when companies are more established, they're bigger, they have that track record of revenue, maybe even profitability. And at that stage, once you get to C, men and women raise at equal numbers, the percentage is the same for men and women. And I got this data from an organization called All Raise based in San Francisco. And I said to them, what happens at this stage? Why is it that women are raising at lower numbers than what happens at Series C? And the answer is very simple. Once you get to that stage, companies have a track record. And so investors are less influenced by, do I like this guy? Do I want to work with him? Does he remind me of the last guy who had success? And they're more saying, okay, what is the track record of this company? And so once the numbers, and again, I'm obsessed with data, can speak for the themselves, they can overcome any potential negative impact of bias. I think that's what's so interesting to me. And that's why I believe the solution to most things lies in using data to strip out bias. And that would be my answer, whether it's about pay equity or promotion equity, you name it. I really just think that people assume that their hearts are in the right place or that they wouldn't be biased. But the truth is that nobody can eliminate their own instinct towards pattern matching. And just to define my terms, since people don't talk as much about pattern matching as they do about unconscious bias. We have this idea of unconscious bias. Everyone knows it's bad to have unconscious bias. That's something that's sort of out there, but I think it's talked about so much. It has almost lost its meaning. And the term pattern matching is very specific. Is the natural human instinct. It is not malicious to try to take new people or ideas you encounter and fit them into existing patterns. So if you meet an entrepreneur, you're like, does this guy remind me of the last guy? Is he the next Mark Zuckerberg? And if there are fewer women who have ever established the pattern of a successful female founders, then the investors have a harder time fitting someone who's a young entrepreneur who doesn't fit into a pattern, fitting them into a rubric that they can think about and understand. So it's not intentional, but they're just saying, I've never met a woman launching a company in the wedding space before. Is this even a business I should care about? Is this a sector that has growth potential? And so that lack of a pattern fit with newer types of ideas or female founders or women or women of color, the fact that there hasn't been precedent ends up working against them without any malice coming into the equation. I think that's why, as you illustrated, it's so important that we try to break that down at those earlier stages of funding where women aren't getting that as much. And it's critical to starting businesses. You really need that capital early on. One of the things that you found could help women with this is to talk about their business around the social mission. And you mentioned that more women do create businesses with a social mission in mind. So I'd love for you to talk about that. In particular, bring that to life with some of the stories and the women that you talk to. So one of them is Christine Mosley, who has a company called Full Harvest about rescuing ugly produce and making sure that that can get out there. What did you find that was important to her and others like her around that social mission framing? 
social mission, but also companies with a social mission. So there's so much research and this plays sort of both in a positive way and in a negative way. So first I'll share the negative because there's flip sides to every coin here is that the most double standards about women in business, most double standards or stereotypes that women face come down to this underlying expectation that women are supposed to be warm and nurturing, period. I write about sort of the 50 different ways women face double standards, but underlying most of these is this expectation of warmth and nurturing. And if women don't fit that stereotype or are not acting in a way that is in fitting with that pattern, again, back to the pattern, then they're judged more harshly. So women fail in a female-dominated field, they're judged more harshly than a man failing in that field. If they succeed in a male-dominated field, then they're judged more harshly. If they show anger, if they show humor, they're judged more harshly. But underlying all these things is this, oh, women are supposed to be warm and nurturing. Of course, we all know, we work in the world, that if we were to be warm and nurturing all the time, it would be ridiculous and not appropriate. I have faced plenty of criticism that I'm not consistently warm and nurturing, but I'm a business reporter. I shouldn't be warm and nurturing all the time. So what's so interesting is that some research has shown that when female founders have an element of social good or additional purpose to their for-profit company, that eliminates the negative impact of bias. There's a fascinating study out of Harvard Business School that shows that when men and women are pitching just a regular company, the theoretical investors would rather invest in the hypothetical male company. If you add a social purpose to the company, and this is the same hypothetical company with the same business model, all of the same things, but there's a female founder of one of these hypothetical companies and a male founder of the other hypothetical company. If you add a social purpose, it eliminates that negative impact of bias and investors would want to invest equally in both of these identical companies. So of course, if they're a hypothetical company and the stats are exactly the same, it should be equal whether there's a social purpose or not. But what's so interesting is if you acknowledge that assumption of warmth, having that social purpose fulfills that stereotype in a way and eliminates the negative impact of bias. This is a relatively new study. All of the women who I profile in the book had started their companies and started to grow their companies well before this study came out. So for instance, Tala is a company in the microloan space. There are plenty of nonprofits focused on environmental sustainability. And so I asked each of these women, why did you want to do your purpose-driven company as a for for-profit company rather than a nonprofit. And the answers were very clear to people at your organization, I'm sure. And it really came down to the fact that they knew they would have a bigger impact at a for-profit company. They knew they'd be able to grow faster, scale faster, reach more people, help more farmers, help the environment better. And I think that Full Harvest is a perfect example of this. This is a woman, Christine Mosley, who had worked at a high-end juice company. She saw how expensive ingredients were. Then she was on farms visiting and she saw how much waste there was lettuce leaves that weren't perfect, that were just being left to rot, which is an incredibly expensive problem with billions of dollars of produce being left to rot, terrible for the environment, and farmers are losing out on revenue. And so she said, I can create a platform that's a win-win-win. I'm going to enable farmers to sell their imperfect foods to all the consumer packaged foods companies or the likes of cauliflower pizza companies or juice companies that want this imperfect produce at a lower cost. So you're helping the juice companies, you're helping the farmers, you're helping them match up, you're helping the environment. And then she's creating this profitable company. And so I think it was so interesting the way that she used her perspective on these different industries and these different stakeholders to create a real win-win situation with far more long-term benefits than if she had been focusing on a nonprofit. 
No, I love that. I think the retail examples that you also bring up in the book have a very similar feel in that they look for their environmentally beneficial. So I'm talking about business models like Rent the Runway, The Real Real. They are reusing or recycling different things. And those founders also had an unbelievably hard time launching. And what I was really surprised about, and I'm a customer, so I can see the value prop, but I was surprised at how much the industry itself was really resistant to some of these models that Jennifer Hyman at Rent the Runway did not get a lot of support early on from designers and maybe from others who didn't think what she was doing would actually work or maybe would compete with them. So what did you find regarding those models? I think you know, many of our listeners here are customers as well and use these products and are happy they succeeded. But what did the founders have to do to succeed and to really get through? You know, it's so interesting. And I think in every industry, change is hard. I cover media and tech for CNBC. Change is slow. Change is hard. Change often comes with disruption. If you look at the transformation of the media industry, so much of that was really forced by the success of Netflix. And I think in the retail industry, this is an industry that had been controlled by a very certain hierarchy of companies for such a long time. But the women who succeeded in disrupting that status quo did so because they had an outsider perspective and because they were using their outsider perspective perspective to shift attention to what is actually best for the consumer, not what is best for the fashion houses who send people down a glamorous runway and they're controlling the designs that the everyday person has access to, but what is the big picture business model that's going to be revolutionarily different? Renting clothes, people didn't think it was going to work at first, or recycling clothes, who's going to want to sell their handbags or buy a used handbag like the real real does. I mean, these were concepts that were seen as crazy when they launched and turned out to to be incredibly effective. And I think that this idea that it can take an outsider perspective to identify the potential to have a real change in consumer behavior is really meaningful. And then I think about someone like Whitney Wolf Hurd, the CEO of Bumble, one of those few women who took her company public. She had this amazing combination of insider and outsider perspective. She had been at Tinder when it launched. She'd been part of that founding team. She saw what was going on with the dating industry. And she also saw that it wasn't working for many women. And so she could use her knowledge knowledge and also her outsider perspective to figure out how to create something that felt really different. There had never been a dating app before that had women only make the first move. People thought she was nuts, but she ended up being onto something. And I think sometimes leveraging that outsider perspective and being unfettered by these rules of business that have dictated how things have always gone in order to come up with something new can be really liberating. And there were so many women who said to me, and this sort of ties back to the original idea of authenticity, when I asked them, like, how did you come with your idea? Or why did you take this crazy approach? Or no one had done it this way before. Why did you think you were onto something? And they said to me, effectively, I already didn't fit their expectations of what a CEO was going to look like. I already didn't fit their expectations of someone who was going to succeed. So therefore, I could just do things my own way because I wasn't going to meet their expectations no matter what I did. And sort of being liberated from those traditional structures can be hard because you have everyone betting against you, but also is just ultimately liberating to pursue new paths. I love that. I think that's got great lessons for anyone here, even if you're not an entrepreneur, to just really follow your instincts, solve those problems that you know something about. And even if it's not the way it's always been done, that's when you're really onto something. Follow the data. Sometimes people ignore data because that's not the way it's always been done. And I think about Reese Witherspoon and Sarah Hardin at Hello Sunshine. For years, the Hollywood machine had said women can't lead a big blockbuster, big budget movie. No way you'd put a woman in charge of that. You'd have a woman director. No 
way you'd have a woman director or a female star. And then Wonder Woman came out and they're like, oh, maybe we've been doing this wrong, but maybe that was an aberration. So I think it's not just about instinct, but it's also about being willing to see that the data is telling you a different story than the way things have always gone. And I love the Reese Witherspoon model of knowing that's where the readers were, that she went into the book club first and found women are reading these stories. They want these stories also to be told. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what everyday women can do to help themselves in business and along the lines of finding a network for yourself. And we've seen membership groups out there that have really come about to help women do this. Examples like Chief or The Crew, which offer different models, different price points, different ways to do that, which is great. Why is it so important for women to have other women in their network for their success? I feel very grateful to have women who have been mentors and friends, sort of a broader network. And I never thought there was a scientific advantage to any of that. I just thought I felt good when I got to see my friends or my sort of business women friends for dinner. And there's actually hard data showing that women are successful if they have a diverse but close-knit network of colleagues or people they could draw on for business advice. Men's success tends to correlate with having the widest network. So men benefit if they just know a huge number of people. For women, it's more about a smaller but diverse network network of people. And to me, that was kind of reassuring because you don't need to know everybody. You just need to know people in different fields, different industries who you could trust and draw on for different types of advice. One thing that was interesting is talking to women about mentorship. All these women I interviewed, I would ask them if they had mentors or anyone who really influenced their career. And they would say, I didn't have a traditional mentor. I didn't have that person who was more senior than me in my company who was helping me out and giving me advice. That traditional concept of mentorship, I think is pretty outdated. Everyone said they had people who helped them, but sometimes there were people who were advising them who were their peers who worked at other companies, a level above them or a level below them in a related group at the same big company. But just having this idea that this concept of a board of advisors, people who are going to be your network and give you advice and mentorship on different decisions and different pieces of your life. And you're never going to get all the mentorship or advice you need from just one person, but you can pull together people from diverse perspectives and diverse backgrounds to help be your personal board of advisors. So I think that's important. The other thing that was so interesting to see is that if you're in a male-dominated field, surrounding yourself with other women will help mitigate the negative impact of bias. And this is why ERGs exist, employee research groups exist, and this is why affinity groups exist. There's hard research behind affinity groups. Anytime you're in a minority position, especially if that minority group is not associated with success in that field, which most of the time minority groups are not, that minority group can suffer from the negative impact of bias. There was a fascinating study that I love that I cited in the book about how female engineers were told in a social science situation, women are bad at math, but we're gonna give you this math test. You female engineers, good luck. You're gonna have a really hard time. When they were told that negative stereotype, which we're all familiar with, their math test scores declined precipitously. But if the social scientists put these female engineers in groups of other women, and these women just in a couple of minutes got to see there were other people like them, and they were not alone. And then they were told that stereotype that women are bad at math, that stereotype had no impact on their performance. And this idea that these micro environments or small groups of other people like you can really bolster you and help protect you from any negative impact of bias and remind you that you belong to be there. And there are other people like you and you're all in it together is incredibly, incredibly valuable. I, at least, and many of my friends sort of felt that instinctively, but to see the data around it was really powerful and a reminder to me, and I hope a reminder to other people, that these are resources to be drawn on and to not be afraid to tap into these networks. 
you had mentioned in the book that women are better at negotiating on behalf of others. So maybe it's the same concept of being willing to give that help or being able to put yourself out there for someone else, whereas they might not feel as comfortable negotiating on their own behalf. What can we learn about that, right? They're good at it. So I guess that's the bottom line. Women are good at it. They're not worse negotiators. But what should people do when they think they are uncomfortable with negotiations? I think it is good news that the strongest negotiators are not men negotiating on behalf of themselves. The strongest negotiators are women negotiating on behalf of other people. So it is great that women have that skill set. But it's, again, dealing with the sort of socialized pressure not to unleash your full power on behalf of yourself. You're supposed to be warm and nurturing. You shouldn't be doing that as the stereotype. There is actually a study in the book that I write about that talks about how when women are told to sort of think that they're negotiating on behalf of or train themselves to think, what would I do if I was negotiating on behalf of someone else? Then they can get themselves into that mindset. So you can work to embrace that information to get yourself into a more aggressive mindset when negotiating on behalf of yourself. And this is where the women coaching each other comes in. As you get a group of women together and you say, how do I negotiate a raise? They will tell you how to be your own strongest negotiator because they're going to be deploying that negotiating skill on behalf of you. Getting yourself into a new mindset and also surrounding yourself with people who can coach you to be the strongest negotiator both play into that. I love that. What are lessons you hope people really take away from the book? For me personally, I just found so much inspiration from the entrepreneurs you talked to, from the problems they were solving, from the grit that they had. What else do you hope resonates with people? The book is very optimistic. I'm very optimistic about the power that women have to drive change, not just in the industry, but to help each other succeed. And I think it ties back into that conversation about network and community. I grew up in an era in the business world where the sort of Jeff Immelt GE model of leadership was celebrated and idolized and Six Sigma, and that's how everyone should lead. And that was sort of the era of the early 2000s when I was a reporter at Fortune Magazine. Obviously, there have been a lot of business books written since then, but the image of leadership and success is still relatively narrow. And the idea that you're going to be more successful if you're a gregarious, loud man is still the sort of dominant image. And I really hope that everyone of any gender feels a little bit more liberated from those stereotypes and archetypes and understands that in this day and age with so much uncertainty, whether it's about the economy or about COVID or what the future of the geopolitical landscape looks like, understands that it's time to break free from those archetypes and really understand how they can be their most successful leader and not feel constrained by these boxes that have been really prominent for so long. Thank you. I hope everyone does come away with that feeling. So thank you. Okay, we're going to open up to questions. Here's an interesting one that reflects on leadership. In your research, did you glean any special insights into introverts versus extroverts? Yes, I found this fascinating. I'm not an introvert myself, as you might guess, but there were some really interesting examples of women who were introverts and succeeded in their mind despite that. For much of their career, they talked to me about how they had seen their introversion as being a real detriment to their potential success, but they figured out ways how to deploy this thing, which they'd always seen as a flaw, as a real superpower. So one example is Jennifer Holmgren, who's the CEO of a company called Lanzatech, which turns pollution into fuel. There were some things she just had to overcome. She hates to speak. She's a very soft-spoken Colombian immigrant. She has a slight accent. She would really rather not talk in meetings. And she's talked to me about this. 
but she figured out how to sort of do her speaking and get over her distaste for that in the most effective ways. And one thing she said that turned out to be a huge advantage of her introversion is that because she'd rather listen than speak, then in negotiations, she's far more effective because she listens and listens and listens when her counterparty is first Mm -hmm. saying what they want her to hear. And then they keep on talking. She's not trying to get a word in edgewise. She just lets them keep going. And then she hears what they want her to hear and then what they're actually thinking and what they really want at the end of the day. And so when it comes time for her to speak and come up with her proposal, she's a much better sense of what they really care about, which she would not have known if after 10 minutes, she had jumped in with a counteroffer. So there's something about this idea of if you're an introvert, you might have listening be your superpower. And another couple of women deployed these tools to make sure that everyone was getting a vote in meetings. Shanlin Ma, who's the CEO of a wedding platform called Zola for planning weddings and registries. She says she's sort of borderline introvert, has introvert introversion tendencies. She said that she created this system to make sure that everyone in the room was going to get a vote and it wasn't just the loudest person who was going to be heard because she was worried that other people like her were not bothering to raise their hands or raise concerns or share their perspectives because it was just too hard in a room that was inevitably going to be dominated by one or two loud voices. So I think it's been interesting to see the way not only have these women overcome the potentially negative impacts of that, but actually use the fact that they're introverts to their advantage. And really could put themselves in other people's shoes to say, what I want a leader to do for me. So pull that out. Exactly. This person says, I love your advice that women should be less afraid to ask for a normal favor. But have you come across any studies or can share your perspective on whether people tend to perceive a woman asking for a favor differently than a man asking for a favor? This person asks at the end, sometimes I feel I will be perceived as lower if I were to ask. There wasn't specific research on this, but what it found is that when women were asked how they expected to succeed, they said, by working hard, keeping my head down, trying to do my best work possible, showing that I've done all my homework. Whereas men say, you get ahead by knowing the right people, by leveraging your network and your connections. And women did not say that. I'm sure women are going to be judged more harshly for everything because that seems to be the common thread. (laughs) That specifically was not asked. But I do think that there is sort of a movement more recently to try to normalize that. I've been to a couple of dinners recently where women have said, okay, we're all going to help each other. Ask a favor, give a favor. One ask, one give. I'm sure that concern about that is one factor that's holding women back. I mean, it's funny because the academic research said women find it icky. The concept of asking for professional help is icky. And of course, even talking about it makes me uncomfortable. I've read all this research. I understand it shouldn't make me uncomfortable, but it's so socialized to be something you're not supposed to do. I, of all people, shouldn't see it as making me uncomfortable, but it is something that is a pretty deep-seated fear. Well, I will just tell everyone here, please make the ask because I see it all the time. I see women do it. I see men do it. Just make it because if the worst thing is you're going to hear no, and that's fine too. What should men be taking away from this conversation? We obviously want men to be a part of this. They need to be a part of this. We need their help. How can men really join in this? And what do you want them to take away from your work? I really wrote my book for men to read it, perhaps even more so than women. I think women will find it very inspiring. I think men will find it shocking. I think men need to see the wide variety of success stories in different ways in which women or all people can be successful and by being outside of that dominant stereotype. But I would also say that it's very important to understand that no matter how good your intentions are, 
it's really essential to have data-driven guardrails to make sure you're paying people equitably, to make sure you're promoting people equitably, to understand that women may be less willing to ask for a raise or more concerned about asking for a favor. So you can be aware of the impact of these biases, not just on yourself, but on the whole landscape in which you're operating. So I think that the data needs to be leveraged as a tool for men just as much as it is for women. And ultimately, there's so much research, which I go through extensively in the book, indicating that the most successful companies are diverse ones, whether it's a big public company, a team at a company, venture-backed startup. Diversity drives better results. And so men should be looking at this as a financial opportunity. I'm not asking anyone to look at backing women or promoting women because it's the right thing to do or a nice thing to do. This is not about that at all. I'm a business journalist, and this is about the financial benefits of having more women in business and women in leadership. And the same thing holds true for racial diversity. There's a lot of data around that as well, which I go through in my book. And I hope that the conversation can start to shift around DEI work being a nice thing that companies are doing for their employees to DEI work being the financially smart thing that companies are doing to attract and retain the best talent and also see the advantage to everyone else, the homogenous group, once you have more diversity infused into the room as well. Well, let's maybe end on that. You talk about having a homogenous brainstorming, the studies that had to do with that when it came to college folks letting an outsider in. Tell the audience a study and what the research found there. It's one of my favorite studies in the book. It's about sorority sisters and fraternity brothers and these researchers at Northwestern University asked them to solve a fictional murder mystery. They grouped them in people from their same Greek house. When they brought in an outsider, the group's ability to solve the murder mystery increased dramatically. They solved it with much more accuracy. But what was interesting is it's not because of what you would expect. A new person comes in, they have a new perspective, they help solve the problem. In fact, it's because when you had a new person come in, a stranger who did not have the same code and culture is the fraternity brothers or sorority sisters. The presence of the outsider caused the original homogenous group to reevaluate their assumptions and to be more careful and thoughtful in their decision-making. And to me, that is the ultimate benefit of diversity. It's not just that you get a new outside perspective. It's that you get everyone who's already in the room to get smarter because of that outsider joining the room. And that is what I hope men and everybody takes away from this. Think about how you, if you're part of the homogenous group, how you will get smarter if you have people who are not like you working on your team. And I think that can really drive the conversation to change. I do too. I think that is the right and best reason, the best motivation we've heard. And hopefully it will get people to really stick with this kind of conversation. So Julia, thank you so much for being with us. The book is terrific. There's so much great stuff in there. So thank you, Julia, and best of luck with the rest of your book tour and hope everything goes well. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Really appreciate it. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein, JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.